title of my sermon this morning is A Savior's Love. And I don't know if you noticed the spelling of the word Savior on there. I did that on purpose. Because that's the traditional English way of spelling it. And we're going to talk about the monarchy of Great Britain. So, allow me to introduce you the rightful king of the United Kingdom, Prince Richard, Duke of Gloucester. Not really. But let me explain. So, on January 20th of 1936, King George V died and his son Edward pressed down, ascended to the throne as Edward VIII. Problem was, Edward was much more interested in women and other less than kingly activities than he was in ruling as monarch. At the time he became king, he was having an affair with Wallace Simpson, a married American woman who was working on divorce number two. While for most of us, our personal life is our own business, that is not the case with the king of England. At some point during 1936, he decided that he wanted to marry Mrs. Simpson, but the rest of his government did not think that was a good idea. He faced the choice, break off the relationship or give up the throne. And of course, on December 10th of 1936, King Edward signed the Instrument of Abdication, which became official the next day. As a result, his brother Albert, known as Bertie, became King George VI and reigned until his death on February 6, 1952, when his oldest daughter Elizabeth became Queen Elizabeth II, and that's where we currently are. But let me tell you this, let me give you this uh, thought here, this, this alternate history, if you want to call it that. Let's say Edward did not advocate the throne, meaning he married Wallace Simpson, the government didn't tell him he needed to you know, leave, he stayed king, he married her, which is what actually happened, and they did not have children, which is what actually happened. Edward outlived his brother Albert, who passed away in May, like I said, May 20, he passed away, Edward passed away on May 28, 1972. His brother had passed away some 20 years earlier. Assuming that no order was given, changed in the line of secession, because that's a big thing too. And again, there's a lot of assumptions in my, my point here. If that was the case, King George V's old, third oldest son, Prince Henry, Duke of Gloucester, would have ascended to the throne, possibly as Henry IX, just saying. Henry IX, as I'm going to call him, would have died two years later on June 10, 1974, at which point his oldest son, Richard, would have become king, possibly Richard IV. And if you know history, Henry VIII and Richard III were not the best kings of the United Kingdom. Um, and the reason that the second oldest son, Richard, would become king was because his oldest son would have died during um, Henry's reign. Now, all of this might seem to be based on assumptions and what if, but let me tell you something. I bet Edward at this very moment is rolling over in his grave since another member of the royal family, his great-great-nephew, just became engaged to a divorced American woman. So go figure. So here's, here's my point in all of that, um, all of this. So you might be wondering why in the world am I giving you this history lesson? It's not even like an American history lesson, right? This is completely useless for us, right? Here's my point. Love has caused a great many different things to take place in our lives, right? In, in, the, in the history of our world, right? Love tends to get in the way, and sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. Today we're going to study about the second Advent candle, which I already told you is Mary's candle or the love candle. And I want to talk about how mankind is loved by God and how we, as Christians, need to love mankind back. But before we do, let's take a moment to go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I praise you and thank you for the chance you've given me to declare your word. Allow your spirit to flow through me and guide me in the way you want me to go and to preach only what you want me to say. Allow each and every one of us to truly partake in your word and to take something home today so that we can become closer to you. In your name, 
Amen. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to be um, this week, and for the most part in the next um, the coming weeks, we're going to stick around in Luke chapter 1 and 2. So last week, like I said, we lit the first candle, the first Advent candle, the prophet's candle. And I talked to you about the hope that we have in Jesus the Messiah. This week, we're going to move on to the second candle, candle number 2, Mary's candle, which represents the love of the Messiah and the love that Christians should have towards others. So let's look at Luke chapter um, 1. We're going to start at verse 26. But let me kind of get let me get you to verse 26. I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to tell you what happened. So, beginning of Luke, Luke begins by talking to us about John the Baptist's birth, the foretelling of his birth, to be specifically. Um, Zacharias and Elizabeth were, uh, were rather old. They were not young. Zacharias was a priest. He was serving at the temple this time. It was his turn to serve the temple. An angel appeared to him in the temple and told him that Elizabeth was going to bear a son. He, of course, thinking that he was in his old age, was like, that's not physically possible. How could that possibly be possible? This was not the right thing to say to the angel. The angel was like, wait a second, who, who are you really telling? Are you telling me God can't do this? So the angel decided to teach Zacharias a lesson by making him mute until John was eventually born. So that's where we're at. The angel just told Zacharias that he was going to be a father. He didn't believe it. Now he can't talk. Let's look at verse 26. I'm going to read down to verse 28. I'm going to stop a couple times to kind of give you some context here. So, verse 26. And we're going to talk about the, uh, the birth and the, the foretelling of the birth of Christ to start with here. Now in the sixth month, now of course that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Six months after the angel came and talked to Zechariah. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city in Nazareth, a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. So a couple things real quickly. Favored in verse 28, and then favor in verse 30, as you'll see. Both have the meaning of finding grace, of being honored with blessing. So just kind of remember that. And again, um, this is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's birth, so six months later is kind of the context. Uh, look at verse 29 now. Let's read verse 29 all the way down to verse 37. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of course, the house of Jacob is the house of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So he's talking about the people of Israel. Uh, Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And verse 37. And verse 35, sorry. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will, be, will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. So real quickly here. Even though Jesus is God the Son, meaning Jesus is God, you know, part of the Trinity, He is also God's Son because God impregnated Mary. So meaning God is Jesus' physical, meaning Jesus is His physical Father. Go figure there. 
Now, how is this possible? Of course, it, it, it is. How is it possible for a woman to become pregnant if she hasn't had sex? Last I checked, that's not particularly easy to do. <laughs> then, of course, the answer, as Gabriel said, is because nothing is impossible, and nothing will be impossible with God. God is capable of doing everything, so of course it's possible because God is in control. Look at verse 38. Now, let's finish the text, this section of the text, before we move on a little bit further in the book of Luke. Uh, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord. And behold, the bondslave of the, of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So, Mary, at such a young age, more than likely in her very early teenage years, submitted herself 100% to the will of God. She trusted God fully, even though she did not understand all of God's ways. You ever think about that? Our lives are so crazy sometimes. We don't always understand what God has for us. And you know what? Mary had an angel come and talk to her. I don't think any of us had that angel come and talk to us. I kind of wish that the angel Gabriel would come visit me more frequently. I think life would be a little bit easier. We'd understand more things. Yet Mary, at such a young age, believed God and trusted God. After verse 38, we read about how Mary traveled to visit her cousin Elizabeth. As Mary comes into Elizabeth's presence, the baby within Elizabeth, John the Baptist, does some somersaults within Elizabeth's stomach. Elizabeth cries out and, and, and pretty much prophesies, declares that she already knows that Mary is pregnant with the Messiah. At this point, Mary gives what is called the Magnificat, which I realize I haven't clicked down enough. That was the first picture. There we go, Magnificat, now, which is called Magnificat. It's how it's um, titled in my Bible. It is a song that Mary sings, praising God for his favor upon her life as well as the, her, his favor upon the life and the lives of the people of Israel. Let's read this. Look at verse 34, 46 down to 56. 46 to 56. This is Mary's response to Elizabeth um, kind of praising her and lifting up on um, what was taking place um, with her becoming pregnant. It says, Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard, for he has regard the, for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoken of our fathers to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. So more than likely Mary was there for the birth of John the Baptist, but the Bible does not clearly say that. But if you look at the timing, it would be about nine months from the time when Mary departed. Mary clearly recognized how blessed she was and how blessed the people of God were. That, that's what I think I, I get from this. And of course, that is in response to Jesus the Messiah, response to the Messiah finally coming into the world. If we truly understand the significance of all of this, the time that has been, been, they've been waiting, the people of Israel have been waiting for the Messiah, they're at the point of giving up. And now finally, Mary is told that he is coming, and she is the vessel that God has chosen to use to bring himself, God, into this earth. 
The rest of Luke chapter 1 talks about the birth of John the Baptist, the return of Zacharias' ability to speak, and his prophecy or response to John's birth. Now let's take a look at the actual birth of Christ. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. Let's read verse 1 to 5, and then I'll give you some information. Here. So Luke writes, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken to all the inhabited earth. They're of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. You know, and just a kind of a side thought, engaged is very significant. They are not married yet. You know, they have yet to have intercourse. There's no, um, there, there is no, nothing defiling her and then the, the Messiah within her. So as a result of the census, the census decree, all men needed to return to their ancestral lands. Joseph was from Bethlehem. His ancestors were from Bethlehem. He was of the line of David. Thus he needed to travel to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was about a hundred mile journey from Nazareth, which would have taken about eight to ten days. And if you can, again, understand the, the significance of that, you have a nine-month pregnant woman who had to sit on a donkey for eight to ten days. So any of you who have given birth, um, you should be very happy that you were not married. <laughs> now, there is some question regarding the exact date of Jesus' birth, but for the most part, most people believe that he was born around the year 4 B.C. This is why I know this. Caesar Augustus was Roman emperor from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. Herod the Great, of course, the man who ended up having all the infant children murdered in the city of Bethlehem, um, two years and younger, um, reigned until at least 4 B.C., meaning the birth of Christ had to be within, if he killed in two and younger, meaning that was the time frame, had to be between 6 and 4 B.C. But there is an issue with the text. Here's the issue, and I don't, I don't want to call it an issue, except more of a question. Quirinius, the governor of Syria, did not become governor of Syria until 4 A.D., or 6 A.D. So how does that line up? This is the issue. This is kind of where you know, Greek is so important. If you look at Greek, the Greek New Testament, you, the issue here is the adjective protos, which is translated first for the most part. So if you look again at verse, where do you go? Uh, verse 2, um, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. The Greek word for first here, this pro, protos, could also have the meaning of before. And we see this in the Gospel of John. So if you understand it, it could mean this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor. It could also mean this was the census taken before Quirinius was governor. And you kind of see the significance. The other thought is, and the only reason this is even an issue is because there's no record of Quirinius being governor of, the, of this province of the Roman Empire during this time. They, he could have very well have had more than one reign. He could have reigned at this point, had a break, and then returned Either way, it really doesn't change the fact. It was just some, again, more useless information I felt we need to tell you guys. So, it's also important to remember that all these events happened outside of the control of Mary and Joseph. You know, Mary and Joseph could have traveled to Bethlehem on their own. Of course, I don't know who would want to travel to Bethlehem at nine months pregnant. Let alone, I mean, imagine being nine months pregnant having to spend eight to ten days in a car, let alone eight to ten days on the back of a donkey. I just can't imagine that would be a pleasant thing. Yet the census that was decreed from the Roman Empire 
that was completely separate from Mary and Joseph is why the prophet Micah's prophecy in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 was fulfilled regarding the, uh, the city that Jesus was going to be born in. Again, just another amazing thought. Now look at verse 6 and 7. Let's actually read about the birth here. It says, While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. According to tradition, Jesus was born in a cave, uh, more so than the little nativity thing, which completely throws away my nativity design. I mean, Tabitha makes fun of me that everything I build looks like the nativity out there. More than likely, it wasn't this little wooden structure. It was a cave that the, in, the innkeeper stored his animals in. So the cave idea is more realistic than, than our traditional idea of the nativity. The location was anything but private. This was a, you know, a bunch of animals. It was anything but sanitary. The Messiah was born in, less than desire, in a less than desirable location, to say the least. And then my other, my other thought was I kind of wondered if, you know, after the fact, you know, maybe you know, 30 years later when Jesus is doing his Jesus thing, if the innkeeper realized who he refused. I mean, just the, the thought there was just a thought I had. I don't know why that came up. But firstborn is also significant as well. This is clearly indicating that Mary was not some, some outer-worldly um, deity. She was a normal human being that God used. In the same way that God uses us, she had all the children with Joseph. Of course, two of them are James and Jude, the authors of the two books within, the, um, within our Bible. After the visit of the, of the shepherds, we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, that Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. I think it is very clear that Mary understood the significance of this event as well as the continued significance of everything else that was going to happen in Jesus' life and his eventual death to the point where she was standing under, under the cross. In John chapter 19, oh, once again, I didn't click. John chapter 19 Verse 25b to 27, Jesus says this from the cross. Standing by the cross of Jesus was, were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother, he and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, that disciple, of course, is John the disciple, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So John, the disciple, took Mary to be his mother, essentially. Took her in. What I want to point out here is the devotion that Mary had, not only to God, but also to others. We saw that earlier in her song, in the Magnificent. We read about how she praised God for the blessing that she had upon herself, as well as the blessings that the people of Israel had. Jesus' followers need to have a similar devotion and love towards God and others. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is questioned by a lawyer, a lawyer of the Pharisees. The lawyer said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And then Jesus replied in verse 37 to 40, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. My paper, I had, a, I had to do a thesis when I graduated from seminary, and it was breaking down the Ten Commandments. And you can break that into two groups. The first four commandments all tie in to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. The last six commandments all are summarized in love your neighbor as yourself. These are the key to loving others. These are my two points this morning. Christians are to love God and love others. So I'm going to start with love others. 
Let me go back to the picture. Love your neighbor as yourself. At other points in the gospel, Jesus clearly defined who our neighbors are. We read earlier, Kate read about the Good Samaritan. If you understand the context, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. The Jewish people couldn't stand the Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with them. Yet Jesus tells a story where a Samaritan is the one who helped the Jewish person instead of the Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite. And that's significant. It'd almost be like if you were on the side of the road and, and, and you know, the, the pastor of the church and the deacons or other spiritual leaders within the church just walked right by you and left you there. But someone who had nothing to do with the church is the one who helped you. The point is Christians are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And our neighbors are not necessarily the people we're comfortable with. John chapter 13. Did I do it? I, oh, I did do it. I'm messing it up. But this is the problem. I need to get that screen in the back now. All right, John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35. Jesus tells us, New commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Think about those individuals in your life who just don't particularly like you. The people who want to do you harm. And these could be people overseas, people that we don't even know. They could be your co-workers. You think about those people and you remember that those are the people that Christ has called us to love. doesn't make it easy, but that's who we're supposed to love. We're supposed to love our neighbors. We're supposed to love each other as Christians, as he says here in John 13. But we're also supposed to love those outside the church. We're supposed to love all of mankind because that's how Jesus loved mankind. First John chapter 4, verse 15 to 21. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this, in this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Christians need to love each other. We need to love those outside of the church. Bottom line. And the reason we do this is, as it said there in verse 19, because he first loved us. So, we need to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, which is my kind of second point here, second point of application. So we got to love our neighbors. We also got to love our God. This is the basis, like I said, of the first four commandments. This is the basis of it all. I mean, we can't love others if we don't love God because we wouldn't know how to love. I mean, our children know how to love other people because we love our children. Christians cannot love others if they don't first love God. Deuteronomy chapter four or chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, verse 4 is what they call the Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And how do we do this? How do we love God? Jesus tells us, John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Even though Christians are free from the penalty of sin, meaning we are no longer held accountable for breaking the commandments, 
We are still called to follow the commandments. They are a great guideline for living our lives. Jesus tells us this, John chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The prophets, uh, the law of the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Christ. We love God by following His guidelines and obeying His commandments. We love God by growing in our faith, which is what happens when we follow His guidelines and commandments. We grow in our faith by following what I call the big three. We've got to pray to God. We've got to talk to God. We've got to communicate with God. That's how we talk to God. God reciprocates. God talks to us through His Word. Basic instructions before leaving earth. I'm going to give you every cliche I have. We need to hear the Word. We need to read the Word. We need to study the Word. We need to meditate on the Word. And we need to memorize the Word of God. If I don't talk to my wife and she don't talk to me back, if I don't listen, we don't listen to each other, we don't have a very good relationship. God talks to us through His Word. If you don't open this book, you can't possibly be talking to God. You can't hear what He says. And that's the reality. You might be able to pray to Him, and you know, we all know how to pray. You know, when things get a little wishy-washy, we go to the Lord in prayer. We don't always open this book and hear what He says. We have to. Talk to Him and listen to Him. Listen to what He says. And then number three, we need to be active participants in God's church. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean this church means a church. Be involved in a church. Be actively involved in the church. Meaning, don't just sit in church. Be the church. Why do we do this? Why do we love God and do whatever it takes to grow closer to Him? Because He first loved us. John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And then my, I think this is still my favorite verse in the entire Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No greater love than the love of Christ. The love that God has in sending Jesus to give His life for us. The love we have for others in God comes from God. Meaning all we are doing when we are loving God and loving other people is reciprocating and emulating the love that God has given us. If I ask people close to you, your co-workers, your family members, your friends, if I ask them if they see God in you, what would their answer be? My prayer for your walk with God is that others see Jesus in you through the way you speak and the way you act, not just the way you preach. You know, we like to go preach about Christmas or Christmas reason for the season, this, that, or the other thing. But what, there's no reason preaching if our actions... The words and our actions, the things we say and the things we do, don't also put Christ on display. We have to. Let me close up. One element of Christmas that so many of us are familiar with are Christmas charities. That either the, the Salvation Army ringing bells outside of Walmart or Toys for Tots drives. They're doing one um, outside of uh, the McDonald's near, uh, near Walmart. Or the one that I'm going to talk about today is the Samaritan Purse Operation Christmas Child Shoeboxes. We're so used to this. We see these so frequently. In the lead up, or in leading up to Christmas of 2000, 70 year old Tyrell Wolf and his family packed shoeboxes that were headed to the Philippines. Little did he know how impactful those shoeboxes were going to be in his life. In 2009, a now 21 year old Tyrell got a friend request from a woman named Joanna Marchin, but ignored it because he didn't know who she was. 
Two years later, he got curious. He looked into who she was, and he asked her, how, how do you know me? And her reply was, you sent me a shoebox. I mean, isn't it amazing to think what technology can do? Back when, you would have never been able to find that. Nowadays, everyone's hooked up, and everyone's on the Internet. The two, the two started to communicate. Let me press down and show you this picture, I guess. The two started to communicate through Facebook and found that they had a lot in common when it came to their Christian faith. In May of 2013, they decided to meet in person and Wolf traveled to Quinzon City, a suburb of Manila. After the first visit, the two continued to Skype and message each other through Facebook until Wolf visited Marchin in, uh, for a month in November of 2013. At the end of that trip, he asked um, her father, in his own language, if he could marry his daughter. And then, on October 5, 2014, they were married, and in lieu of gifts, they asked for shoeboxes that were donated to Operation Christmas Child. Kind of a powerful story of how charity goes a long way, so Gabe, you should pay attention to that. If you really want to find a woman, it's not so. <laughs> I'm, ju I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Okay. I'm trying to think if I have another. I don't think I can press down again. Christian love can go a long ways. That's really where I'm getting at. Christian love can go a long ways, and oftentimes it goes much farther than we're ever going to know. What do other people see in you? That's really the, that's the money question today. What do other people see in you? Do they see Jesus? Or do they see something else that pushes them away from Jesus? That's just how simple this is. Christians need to show the love of Christ through their words and their actions. Do you show the love of Christ through what you do? Do you show Jesus not just by telling them about the Bible, not just because you're walking around with your Bible in school or something like that, but because of what you say and what you do when you're not necessarily thinking, when you're just doing it? What good does preaching Jesus if our actions remove Jesus from the picture? There's no good in me getting up here and preaching this morning if this afternoon I'm going to go to the bar or go do any other sort of thing that might not be the best thing for me as a Christian or me as a pastor to do. What good is it? What are other people seeing? And you know, kind of speaking of Facebook and stuff, Facebook could be a great tool, but also could be a pain in the neck. Because people see what you're doing when you put those pictures up there. You know, just remember that, just a thought. We need to remember the reason for the season. We need to remember that Jesus is the key to every element of our lives, and we need to put Him first and foremost. Tell other people about Christ, not only through what you say when it comes to maybe evangelizing, or I like to say preaching, but also through your words and your actions. Let's close in prayer. Dear Father in Heaven, I praise You and I thank You for Your amazing love. I thank You for the fact that You demonstrate Your own love, not by making us do anything, not by making us earn Your love, but by giving your own self in the form of Jesus to die for our sins so that we can be in your presence. Lord, you, you went all the way. You know, we were so far away from you. We were so desperate and in need of a Savior. And on our own, we were in trouble. Yet you, being God, stepped forward, reached down, and grabbed us when we were sinking. I thank you, Lord, for the love that you have for us. Lord, I now ask that you help us this Christmas season love other people. I thank you, and I praise you in your wonderful name. Amen.